And with that, if you would, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 tonight. Jeremiah chapter 31. We've been making our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Jeremiah. And it is one of the longer books of the Bible in the Old Testament. It has 52 chapters. doesn't make it the longest book, but it's a big book in the Old Testament. But the character of the book of Jeremiah, as we have seen it thus far, is mostly, is it fair for me to use the word? It's mostly depressing. It is the hammer of the announcement of judgment coming again and again upon the southern kingdom of Judah. And and there have been glimmers of promise. There have been glimmers of hope that we've seen, especially through the first 29 chapters. But last week, when we got into chapter 30, we saw a change. We're beginning a section of chapters in the book of Jeremiah that are filled with glory and hope and promise And maybe the brightest shining light among that section of four chapters is the chapter we're going to take a look at tonight, Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's begin verse 1. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. The first thing I want you to know is verse 1 gives us a time connection. Did you notice the phrase, at the same time? That that connects it with the time reference from the last verse of chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 24, says that these things will take place in the latter days. In the big picture of God's prophetic plan, we're talking about things that God will do in the very end times. Things that we see him either beginning to perform now, or the stage set for their performance, even as we speak. So these things that happen in the latter days, and what does it say will happen in those times? Well, take a look there in verse 1. I will be the God of all the families of Israel. God says they're going to return to me. Israel will return to me. Friends, this is a promise that is stated many times, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in what we call the New Testament, most notably in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, where the Apostle Paul famously wrote, so all Israel will be saved. That the Jewish people, God's covenant people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has an enduring plan for them that is not over and it will end with them largely coming to salvation. Friends, it doesn't mean that every Jewish person will trust in Jesus as their Messiah, but it means the vast majority of them will. They'll no longer be known as a largely secular people or or as no longer Moses-following people, but as those who trust in Jesus as their Messiah. Look at what it says in verse 2. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. You see, the previous chapter, chapter 30, described a great persecution of the Jewish people. It described it as the time of Jacob's trouble. That was Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. And this time of great affliction upon the Jewish people, which is also described in the book of Revelation, this will afflict many, not all of them will survive, but among those that do, the vast majority will receive, as it says in verse 2, grace, they will receive rest. It'll be a fulfillment of that promise and all Israel shall be saved. Now going on here, verse 3, 
the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines. You shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountain of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchmen will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. I love this little vision that Jeremiah the prophet has. He says, the Lord, verse 3, appeared to him of old. He's speaking about something that's rooted or anchored back in eternity past. God, from the greatness of his timeless being, spoke to Jeremiah. And look at what he says, verse 3. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I tell you, I, I can't even get over the first word in that phrase. Yes. It's as if it wasn't enough for God to say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He he had to amplify it by saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have, I mean it. It is deep within my soul. This love I have for you, O people of Israel, it is anchored in eternity past, but it extends to the eternity future. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And God assured Israel of this. He sealed it with the word yes. Now remarkably, there are some people who are Christians and they love Jesus. I have no doubt that they will be our brothers and sisters in heaven. I have no doubt that some of them serve God very faithfully, but there are some segments of Christian theology who seem to think that God has said no to an everlasting love to Israel as Israel. That God has finished with Israel. That that, that the Jewish people, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have no more place in God's plan than anybody else. Then friends, what has happened to the everlasting love? Apparently, God has said no to the everlasting love when Jeremiah very plainly says he has said yes to the everlasting love. And this is what I want you to understand. This statement was spoken to Israel. Do we understand that? This statement was spoken to Israel, but it describes the love of God for every believer. I love what F.B. Meyer wrote about this, about how this describes God's love for you. He wrote this. You must go back beyond your birth, beyond Calvary and Bethlehem, beyond the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, and as you stand looking out into the immensity of eternity, dare to believe that you were loved and chosen in Christ, the object of God's most tender solicitude and pity. Friends, he has loved you with an everlasting love, a love that stretches from eternity past and will stretch into eternity future. That is God's love for his people. Now here specifically, he links it to Israel. There's no doubt that that's the context. But friends, this is God's love for all of his people. And notice what he says there in verse three. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Because of God's everlasting love, the promise remains 
that he will draw Israel. He won't push them. He will draw them. He will draw them, as one of the other prophets says, with cords of love. It's as if he'll draw them unto himself. And this describes what God will do to affect this restoration of Israel that was promised before. His promise remains to draw Israel with his loyal love. That that word loving kindness is that great word in the Hebrew scriptures, chesed, loving kindness, loyal love, covenant mercy. And notice, friends, it's the loving kindness of God that draws people unto himself. He he doesn't force them or compel them, but he draws them in love and compassion. You see, in the bigger picture of God's redemptive plan, we could say that it's the kindness of God to Israel in the midst of the time of Jacob's trouble that draws all Israel to him. And therefore, all Israel will be saved. But the promise goes on. Look at it there in verse 4. Again, I will restore you. God's loyal love to Israel means that he restores, he builds them. And this is assured. Look at what it says in verse 4. And you shall be rebuilt. And that'll mean joy. It'll mean dancing. It'll mean abundance. The the watchmen. Look at the reference to watchmen in verse 6. It says there in verse six, when the watchmen will cry out on Mount Ephraim, arise and let us go to Zion. Do you you know what watchmen are there for in ancient Israel? They're to look and see when enemies are approaching. There's not gonna be any more enemies in that day. So what are the watchmen gonna be? Oh, the watchmen will still be there, but they'll look out and they'll cry out to the pilgrims that stream back to Jerusalem. Arise, let us go back to Zion. Isn't that beautiful? They, They won't have a need for them to warn of an enemy. It speaks of the great and beautiful restoration of the Jewish people. Now verse seven. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness to Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplication. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way. They shall not stumble for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim my firstborn. You see, when God gives these wonderful promises of the restoration of Israel, it causes joy. They say they're going to come back, and they're going to come back joyfully. Verse 7, sing with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations. Why? Verse 8, because I will bring them, God says. A great throng will return there. It's not merely a returning to Yahweh. Friends, don't miss it here. Don't miss this. It's not merely a returning to Yahweh. It's a returning to the land. This is one of the things that struck me in a surprising way. Friends, you understand, I've been studying the Bible pretty intensely for many decades. 35 plus years, whatever it is. I've been studying the Bible very intensely. I still get surprised all the time. And I was surprised to see the emphasis upon the land in this chapter. God doesn't just promise a spiritual restoration of Israel, as glorious as that is. And let us face it, that is the more important thing. Isn't it more important that Israel be restored spiritually than it is that they be restored to the land? Absolutely. It's more important the spiritual. We, We recognize that immediately. But friends, don't miss it for a moment. 
God did not promise only a restoration spiritually, but he also again and again promises a restoration to the land throughout this chapter. My friends, a great miracle happened in 1948. I think sometimes we get a little numb to it. A nation that had not existed as an independent, sovereign nation. There had not been a Jewish state in Israel for more than 2,000 years. And friends, God brought it back. Such a thing had never been seen on the face of the earth before. It was an amazing thing. So a miracle happened in 1948, but friends, as wonderful and miraculous as that was, it does not yet fulfill the glory of this promise. Because Israel now is gathered in the land, at least partially, but they are largely gathered in unbelief. Do you know that most of the Jews who live in Israel are secular? Oh, there is a strong and active religious contingent there. There's no doubt, but they're a minority. The majority of Jews who live in Israel, they're secular. They don't have a particular devotion or commitment to the God of Israel, even through the institutions of Judaism. They are now gathered in unbelief, but these promises will completely be fulfilled. And I see the stage set for their complete fulfillment even now. Matter of fact, look at verse 9. It says, they shall come with weeping. In this great restoration of the latter days, Israel will return to Yahweh. They will return to his Messiah. They will return to the land with tears and with supplications, as it says in verse 9. As one of the other prophets wrote, this is Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves over a firstborn. My friends, that is such a moving and tender description of Israel's return to their Messiah. Looking upon him whom they have pierced. And the prophet says that they will ask him in that day, where did you get these wounds? Messiah, you're pierced. Where did you get these wounds? And he will say to them, I was wounded in the house of my friends but it'll happen. The restoration will come. I read something fascinating by the great Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon this week. Listen to what he wrote in the year 1855. He preached 1855. He preached this sermon. I believe in the restoration of the Jews to their own land in the last days. I am a firm believer in the gathering of the Jews at a future time. Before Jesus Christ shall come upon the earth again, the Jews shall be permitted to go to their beloved Palestine. I love reading those quotes from people a hundred or so years before the fact or even earlier that they could very clearly see. They saw it as prophecy. We see it as history. And we anticipate a greater and more perfect fulfillment as we approach the very end of the age. Now beginning here at verse 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming into the goodness of the Lord. For wheat and for new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Just beautiful, poetic imagery of God gathering people to both a spiritual restoration and a restoration to the land. Verse 13, Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them. And make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Verse 13, I'll turn their mourning to joy. You see, Israel mourned under their exile. They mourn under their separation from God. They mourn in so many ways. But God says, no, I'm going to take that mourning. And what will he do with it? Verse 13 says, I'll turn their mourning to joy. God promised to do this and bring them great comfort. So much so that look at what it says there in verse 14. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance. You know what the idea is there? The idea there is that the priests receive the tithe and the people are so materially blessed that there's lots of tithe coming in and the priests have more than enough. Isn't that a beautiful picture? By the way, I want you to know that I think that's how it should work in the house of God, period. That God blesses his people. He provides for them in beautiful and abundant ways. And they give proportionally out of that unto the house of God. And when God really blesses them, they give and they give proportionally a lot to the Lord. I just think that's how it works. Matter of fact, that's, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I just will. Well, of course I should say it. Why shouldn't I say it? I have a little conversation with myself even as I'm preaching. (laughs) I, I pray that God will materially, abundantly bless generous people in our congregation right isn't that how he wants to do it isn't that how he wants to satiate the priest with abundance he he wants to do it by by people who just being a channel for his generosity so i I just think that's a good thing for a a leadership for a pastor to pray lord you you know the generous people in our congregation i don't know necessarily all who they are i don't look at giving records and such as this but lord you know who they are lord bless them Bring great, unexpected blessing their way, God, because these people are channels for your goodness. That's the same principle that he's talking about in verse 14. Now verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Okay, you need to stop right there because they are no more at the end of verse 15. Friends, this is a very interesting voice. Here the Lord is speaking through a poetic image. Here's the poetic image. Rachel, one of the mothers of Israel, one of the wives of Jacob, mother of Jacob's two favored sons, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And through Joseph and Benjamin, Rachel was the ancestress, the ancestor, whatever you want to call it. Rachel was the ancestor of more people in the tribes of Israel than anybody else because those were some of the biggest tribes. 
So he personifies Rachel poetically as looking out and Rachel's weeping. She's weeping in Rama. Why Rama? Because her tomb was very near there. In a poetic figure, Rachel's weeping. And why is she weeping? Look at it there in verse 15. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. In the picture Jeremiah draws, they're gone. Her children are gone. They've been exiled. The land's been cleared out. They've all been taken out. And Rachel's weeping. It's as if, if Rachel could come from her grave and look about where are all my children they've gone but then look at what God says yes thus says the Lord refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded says the Lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope in your future says the Lord that your children shall come back to their own border I think there's two remarkable things here. First of all, some of you are very much in touch with the fact that Matthew, the gospel writer, quotes this prophecy. He quotes this, not so much as a prophecy, but as a type. Rachel was weeping in Jeremiah's poetic picture. Rachel was weeping at the slaughter of the innocents by Herod at the birth of Jesus. So you have that link between the two drawn over from the gospel of Matthew. That's one thing. But here's the other thing. And in my mind, one of the more remarkable things of this, notice this. It says there in verse 15, refusing to be comforted for her children. That's Rachel's demeanor. I'm refusing to be comforted. Have you ever met somebody? Well, have you ever met, have you ever been somebody who refuses to be comforted? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what people say or what they don't say, what they do or what they don't do. People are trying to love on you and you just refuse to be comforted. You you understand what I'm saying? You've either dealt with somebody like that or you've been that person at some time. You know what I love about this? God says, you go ahead, Rachel. You try to refuse to be comforted. I'm going to comfort you anyway. Look at what he says to the Lord. Verse 16, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. God did a remarkable word to poetic Rachel. He commanded comfort to the one who refused to be comforted. I love what Philip Ryken said about this. He said, sorrow and grief do not have the last word, either in Jeremiah or in Matthew. A mother may refuse to be comforted, but God will comfort her nonetheless. Why? Verse 16, for your work shall be rewarded. God's comfort to poetic uh, Rachel was not empty. She could be comforted because there would be reward and restoration. Her children would, look at it there in verse 16, Come back from the land of the enemy. Yes, Rachel, I know, poetically speaking, you came out from your tomb and you saw all your children gone. Rachel, they're coming back. I'm gonna bring them back to the land. And this was God's glorious promise to this poetic figure of Rachel. Verse 18. I've surely heard Rephaim bemoaning himself. And notice what Ephraim said when he bemoaned himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return for you are my Lord, you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented and after I was instructed I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated because I bore the reproach of my my youth. God says in verse 18, I heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. In other words, Ephraim is used here as a figure for all of Israel. It was one of the dominant tribes in Israel. Ephraim is used as a picture of all Israel. And God says, I heard Ephraim mourning, bemoaning himself. And what was Ephraim saying? Look at what Ephraim said. This is thrilling. Ephraim said, you have chastised me and I was chastised. In other words, God, I look at my misfortunes and I understand it's not accidental. 
It's not a run of bad luck. No, you were chastising me. You were trying to get my attention, God, and I wasn't paying attention. And so you had to make it a little heavier. You had to make it a little harder until you got my attention. I get it now, God. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't blind luck or bad luck. Lord, you had to chastise me. I was like, see that phrase in verse 18? Like an untrained bull that needed to be broken in some sense. Maybe that's you. Are you the untrained bull? Let me tell you something. God is the best bull rider in all creation. You see those guys at the rodeo, they stay on for a few seconds, no way. God's going to ride you until you're good and broke. If you're that untrained bull, just give up now. When God decides that he's going to, you know, put his hand in that rope and put that cowboy hat on and ride you until you're broke, he'll do it. So I was like an untrained bull, I get it now, God. And I cry out to you, verse 18, restore me and I will return in total dependence. Lord, I understand I'm so dependent on you, I can't even return to you until you restore me. God, restore me so that I can return to you. I just want it to be right with you again. What a beautiful heart Israel has in this restoration. But then look at verse 20. Verse 20 is the gravy. 18 and 19 was the broken heart of Israel over their sin. Verse 20 is the father welcoming back the prodigal son. Look at it there in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. It's as if God looks at Ephraim, Ephraim returning like the prodigal son, and he sees him coming from a distance, and he calls out, he goes, is that Ephraim, my dear son? And how does he act? How did the father react to the prodigal son? Okay, you better do 50 push-ups if you want to come back into my house. No, that wasn't the father at all, was he? He came up to the prodigal son and he hugged him and he embraced him. Is Ephraim my dear son? Verse 20, my heart yearns for him. This is the everlasting love that was mentioned in verse three of this very chapter. Matter of fact, if I could get a little specific here, the Hebrew phrase, my heart yearns for him, more literally, my guts churn for him. All right, take your mind back to junior high days when you wanted to ask the girl out to the dance. Remember how your guts churned within you, right? You were so infatuated. Young love was so, you know, bubbling over within you that your guts were churning inside. God says, my guts churned for them. This is how much I love my people. This is how much I want to restore them unto myself. Verse 21, let's clear a path for them to be restored. Set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to these, your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. 
Come on back. Why are you waiting any longer? Why are you gadding about? God is restoring now. Now's the time to come back. And then it gives this amazing promise here in verse 22. A woman shall encompass a man. And this means... Nobody really knows what that means. Listen, I read a lot of different commentaries with a lot of different suggestions. Can I give you the best suggestion? It has simply the idea that the women defend the men. In other words, there is such peace that the women can do the defenses, right? You can have the women be the soldiers. There is such peace brought in by the Messiah, such reconciliation to God, that the men can go about their business and the women will stand guard. Now, I don't even know if that's a great, but the, the, the other interpretations are even weirder. We don't know exactly what that means. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with the flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Friends, this is beautiful. God says, this is what they're going to say in Jerusalem on that day. They're going to say this. This is how they're going to greet each other. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. That's going to be the good morning greeting in the restored Jerusalem. Good morning. Well, good morning. Well, the Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. What's interesting about it is it shows that even though the present establishment of the Jewish state, even though the gathering of the Jewish people we have now in the promised land, I believe it's real. I believe it's miraculous. I believe it's the beginning of the fulfillment of prophecy, but it is yet incomplete. Because I'll tell you something. The last time we were in Jerusalem, I remember talking with our tour guide and he was telling us about the corruption trials taking place in the city government and the different officials and the corruption in the city government and such. And of course, just like any other place, you have those things from time to time. In other words, it just remarked me that you couldn't drive through the seats of Jerusalem today and cry out, oh, home of justice and mountain of holiness. That remains to be seen but the beginning of it is taking place even now. Verse 26. After this, I awoke and looked around. Apparently, a substantial part of the preceding prophecy was in some kind of dream. After this, I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, God gave a commission to Jeremiah, and as part of that, he said, listen, Jeremiah, this is part of your call to tear down, to destroy, to knock down the things that are worthy of crumbling and the judgment to come. 
But God also told Jeremiah that part of his work would be to build, to plant. And this is the fulfillment here, verse 28. I will watch over them to build and to plant. Friends, there's a time in God's work where he has to knock it down and clear away the rubble. And then there's a time in God's work where he builds. May I just remind you, God is equally at work in either aspect. Now for me, I much prefer the building part. I much prefer the time, woo, look at all that God's building. But friends, when it's a season of God cleansing, when it's a season of God knocking down, we don't despise it. It's part of his great work. But God says, in this day, it'll be the time to build and to plant. And they shall say no more, verse 29, this proverb that Jeremiah quoted, apparently it was a common proverb because Ezekiel chapter 18 quotes the same proverb, that proverb that simply says, you saw it there in there, it says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You get the idea with that? The idea is that the children are punished for the father's sins. And God says, no, nobody's going to say that anymore. Nobody's going to think that God is punishing a subsequent generation for the sins of prior generations. God says, no, if that future generation does not continue in those same sins, I will not judge them for the father's sins at all. Which brings us to verse 31. You ready for this? Father, bless your word to us here this evening. Verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. In verse 31, Jeremiah began to speak of something that was still future in his day. That's clear, isn't it? It was still future in his day because he says, the days are coming, says the Lord. Verse 31, and what days are coming? Verse 31, that I will make a new covenant. God announced that at a time future to Jeremiah's day, he would make a new covenant. By the way, it's he that makes it. (laughs) You don't make your own covenant with God. I I find this, this thinking so common among even believers or professed believers. You you know, God and I, we got our own little deal. I, I know that, you know, most people have this other deal with God, usually about things that the Bible calls sin and holiness and all that. But me and God, we got our own little deal. Friends, it doesn't work like that. This is the covenant that God makes. And he makes it. He says, I will make a new covenant. And this new covenant would first be with Israel. It would eventually extend to the nations as well. But it would be not according to the covenant that God made with, at Sinai in the desert. It's not like the Mosaic covenant. 
it's not like what God gave Israel in the desert. Now, throughout the Bible, God reveals his plan of redemption through a series of covenants. You see, in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, you have the story of man's fall. Most people think the fall is recorded only in Genesis chapter 3. Friends, it's a continual fall. It's a fall, fall, falling. Man gets bad, worse, and worser all the way through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then finally, starting at chapter 12, God makes a covenant with one man, as far as we know, a Babylonian idol worshiper named Abram. And God makes a covenant with him. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promised to Abraham and his covenant descendants a land, a nation, and a blessing. Those three things would extend to Israel and the blessing would extend to all nations. The blessing was fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then there was the Mosaic or Sinai covenant. It gave Israel the law, the sacrifices, and the choice. What was the choice? The choice was blessing or cursing. Blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Then third, there was the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant that promised an everlasting dynasty to David. It promised a perfect ruler over Israel. And it promised the Messiah that would come from the lineage of David. But then God's plan of redemption through the covenants is completed and perfected in the new covenant. Now, this is not the only passage in the Old Testament that speaks of the new covenant. It's one of the most glorious. But there's several passages in Ezekiel, and there are also passages in Jeremiah otherwise, as well as a few other places, that speak of this new covenant that God promised back in the days of the old covenant. Friends, over the span of the Old Testament passages that announce the new covenant, we see that there are three essential aspects to the new covenant. One is the regathered Israel. Second is the cleansing and spiritual transformation of God's people. And the third is the glorious reign of the Messiah. These are the three great features of the new covenant. And do you understand that Jesus specifically instituted this new covenant by his death on the cross. Specifically, that the night before he was crucified, he sat with his disciples around a table, and he held a cup, a Passover cup in front of them, and he reinterpreted the symbols. Friends, every cup at the Passover meal had a symbolic reference, but Jesus changed the symbolic reference in that particular cup, and he looked at this cup and he goes, look guys, I know this is the cup of Passover and it has its symbolic significance, but I'm telling you now, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I don't know if the disciples perceived it, but if they did, a chill should have ran up their spine. Every one of their arms should have been covered in goosebumps. He just announced that the new covenant is going to be instituted. He just announced that this great thing that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets promised, it's going to happen now. And his death on the cross symbolized by that cup, this would institute the new covenant. 
Friends, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, very consciously said all those Old Old Testament passages that speak of the new covenant, now they're happening because of my death on the cross. Then he says, verse 33, I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. You see, the new covenant brings inner transformation. The law of God is no longer only external. God would change the minds and the hearts of those connected to him by the new covenant. They would be, to use a phrase from the New Testament, born again. They'd be regenerated by the Spirit of God. This is the promise of the new covenant. It's important to understand that the new covenant does not do away with the law of God. It doesn't renounce the law of God or obedience to the law. No, it makes the law closer. It makes the law more important by putting it in my heart instead of just in the ink on a page. But that's not the only thing. It's not just an inner transformation. It is also verse 33. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Friends, This is Old Testament language for close, personal relationship. God says, I am no longer going to relate just to Israel as a community. I will have a personal relationship with every individual who's part of the new covenant. A personal relationship. I will be their God and they will be my people. Look at what it says there in verse 34. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. God says, The veil of the temple is torn. Enter in. No more hiding. No more uh, behind the veil. Open in. Relationship is possible in a way never, never before conceived of. And then finally, verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We've seen that the new covenant brings inner transformation We've seen that the new covenant brings personal relationship with God. Now we see that the new covenant also brings complete cleansing of sin. You know, they did a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament, didn't they? Lots of them. None of those animal sacrifices could ever take away sin, could never put it away. It could cover it over. That's the whole idea. That's the whole concept of atonement in the Old Testament. To cover, to kafar, to cover, to cover over. It's like you might cover a debt with an IOU. Is it gone? No, it's covered. It's temporarily satisfied, but it's not done away with. Do you know what Jesus did at the cross? He took all those IOUs and he paid them off. And then he said, I'm going to pay for it all. This will be a perfect satisfaction for sin, past, present, and future. It's paid. It's done away with. Therefore, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. There's the concept I don't know how real it is, but it's a nice concept that if you went to God and tried to speak to him about a sin that you confessed and had wiped clean by the blood of Jesus, and he said, God, do you remember that sin I committed last week that I told you about? God said, what sin? I don't remember it. It's not like God is growing forgetful like some of us. Not at all. It's he chooses to not remember. He chooses to say, it's covered, it's gone, it's done away with. Friends, this is the glory of the new covenant. I I look at the clock on the wall and it pains me that time is moving on. I got a few more verses I need to talk about. So let me just be as direct as I can right now. There are people 
who name the name of Jesus and they love Jesus. I'll speak to you all as if you are such people in this sense. You love Jesus. You really do. But you relate to God fundamentally on the principles of the old covenant. On the principle of earning and deserving. Of God blessing you when you're a good boy. Of God cursing you when you're a bad boy. Friends, that's old covenant stuff. It's not new covenant. God says, I deal with you on the basis of the grace and love and total forgiveness of the new covenant. God says to us loud and clear, get out of that old covenant and you come and live and walk in my new covenant. The book of Hebrews is filled with that. Galatians is filled with it. And we see the glorious, glorious promise here in the book of Jeremiah. Friends, if there's anything we could do is we just come to God and plead with him, Lord, make me a new covenant follower of Jesus. I want to know the inner transformation. I want to know the personal relationship. I want to know the complete cleansing. Ladies and gentlemen, in the new covenant, those things are your birthrights. And if you're not experiencing them, you have every right to go before God and hold your, his word up to him and say, Lord, you said right here that if I came on the base of the new covenant, I'd have these things. Lord, I need them in my life. Read it, God. It's right here, Lord. Have you ever prayed like that? I pray like that sometimes. It's not that I think that God can't read. It just helps me to know I'm, Lord, I'm just saying this because you said it in your word. Let's resolve to be new covenant Christians. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon for stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. If heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. It's hard to think of God introducing himself in any more dramatic way than this. Thus says the Lord. I put the sun in the sky, the moon in the sky, the stars in the sky. I'm the one who rules the waves. I'm the Lord of hosts. I command heavenly armies. Listen up, people. That's what God's saying in that introduction. And then what does he say? Verse 36. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. All right. Is God finished with Israel as Israel? Has Israel been replaced in God's prophetic plan? Is God done with Israel? Why don't you just go outside and look and see if you can see the sun? If the sun is still up there, even if you can't see it, if you know it's behind the clouds, friend, if the sun is still up there and it's giving light, God is not done with Israel. If there's stars in the skies, if there's a moon, if there's still waves and, and, uh, and a roaring of the sea, friends, all that demonstrates God is not done with Israel. I, I guess what I'm just saying is I cannot imagine a stronger way that God could communicate this. And why some Christians have felt 
that God is finished with Israel. This is how their thinking goes. Listen, uh, Israel had a chance to receive Jesus as their Messiah. They blew it. They rejected him. They crucified him. And so God cursed them. He rejected them. He's forever done. He wrote a bill of divorcement. God is done with them forever. Friends, I, I do not see how that thinking can possibly be reconciled with the plain and clear statements such as this in the book of Jeremiah. I cannot conceive how God could have said it any stronger, any stronger than he says it right here. Now, the New Testament later introduces the idea of spiritual Israel. And friends, this is an important concept. Spiritual Israel is an important concept. Uh, Romans says they are not all Israel who are of Israel. The idea of spiritual Israel is significant, but I think any honest expositor has to say it is not in view in Jeremiah's prophecy here at all. At all. Yes, the Bible has a concept of spiritual Israel. That's not what Jeremiah is speaking of at all. Verse 38. Let's conclude. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall extend straight forward over the hill Gareb, then it shall turn toward Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. Now, in the previous verses, in the strongest possible way, God said, I will never give up on the Jewish people. Never. They continue to have a role in my plan. That's what he said in the previous verses. Now, in this verse, God says, and Israel, and in particular Jerusalem, will always have a special place in my plan. So much so that he marked it out with a surveyor's line and literal, real geographic points. I like what Charles Feinberg, the commentator, said about this. He said, in the broader context of prophecy, this passage will not permit an interpretation that applies it to a spiritual, heavenly, or symbolic Jerusalem. If that were possible then why is it so full of literal detail? If you were going to speak of symbolic Santa Barbara, you wouldn't say, well, then up State Street, over across, you know, to the Riviera, back down to Cabrillo, and then make a square out of that. You wouldn't use those landmarks if you were speaking about spiritual or symbolic or something like that Santa Barbara. On the same principle, friends, God makes it so plain. I'm not done with Israel, and the land remains special to me. And it all ties in to the glory of the new covenant. Father, this is my prayer tonight. I pray that every one of us would live in the glory of the new covenant. I pray that every one of us would live and experience the spiritual transformation I pray that every one of us would experience the personal relationship and that every one of us would experience the complete cleansing of sin. Lord, would you grant that to us? We need it. We long for it. 
We believe that we have it in Jesus Christ, but Lord, it's something that we need to be refreshed to us every day by the good news of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We look to you, Jesus, because it was at the cross that you established the new covenant. This is where the good news, the gospel comes from, that we can be transformed, that we can be brought into right relationship. 